Welcome to the Genetics Podcast. I'm Patrick, the co-founder and CEO of Sano Genetics. And in this episode, we have a very special guest. It's Dr. Paul Wicks. I met Paul um, about half a year ago uh, at a conference, and I was amazed by his understanding of both the science behind neurology and rare and chronic disease in general, but also his empathy with patients. And I think part of this is is just something that's innate to who he is, but another part of it is is from his many years of experience. So he's been 17 years in the digital health and online community space. The majority of those were spent at Patients Like Me, which is a um, online forum and social network. It really doesn't do it justice, but an online platform that allows people to come together and, and discuss their health uh, and learn by um, interacting with other patients that have done the journey uh, maybe before them or in a different way from them. Um, so it's great to have you on the podcast, Paul. Thank you for the invitation. Um, and, and before that, Paul, you were in the field of neurology as a scientist before you joined patients like me. Is that right? How did you get into that? Yes. So I, when I was a teenager, I got very interested in autism. Uh, I read The Man Who Mistook His Wife for a Hat by Oliver Sacks and got really interested in um, the case of Temple Grandin and people who had these savant skills, which seemed to be, you know, superhuman, almost like AI, but in a, yep. in a squishy uh, hum, human body. Um, so I started looking after children with autism in care homes and as a tutor uh, in my sort of um, holidays. And so from there, went and studied psychology and really enjoyed uh, my, my time uh, at undergraduate. And then I actually did my dissertation on repetitive behavior in autism, OCD and Tourette's because you could look at someone with any one of those conditions and see repetitive behavior. But what was interesting to me was not only the, the motivations for why that was, you know, someone with autism might be doing it for the sensory simulation, someone with OCD might be doing it to dispel a negative feeling, whereas someone with Tourette's might just do it almost as an impulse thing. But equally, that we all have repetitive behaviors. Right. I shave the same way every day and you know, uh, people brush their teeth the same way. So obviously there's some human evolutionary benefit if you like of being able to form repetitive behaviors and actually probably a large proportion of our life is spent doing repetitive behaviors right. but i was interested in the pathology of those so after that i wanted to stay in, in sort of pediatrics or child psychology applied for about 50 phds uh but only got one interview and that interview was in completely the opposite end of of the age spectrum was in in neurodegeneration uh in motor neuron disease right and before i applied for, for the interview I, I knew nothing about mnd I knew who Stephen Hawking was, uh, but other than that, I I'd never really heard of it, which is not that surprising, given how rare it is. So where did you do your PhD in the end? What was the one who, uh, who, who did it right and found uh, the gem? <laughs> so uh, I had an interview at the Institute of Psychiatry in Camberwell. Uh, and as my dad dropped me off for the interview, he told me that he used to live in Camberwell and they got married there. And in fact, he and my mother had actually left Camberwell uh, to try and get out and you know, be, be somewhere a bit nicer and leafier and, and what have you uh, when they moved out to Berkshire. But then here I was coming back uh, sort of, um, you know, decades, decades later. So, yeah, during the interview, we were talking about this, this, I think, an interesting aspect of the disease. So when people who think about motion neuron disease, it's also known as ALS. So people might be familiar with the ALS Ice Bucket Challenge. That was a huge you know, publicity boost for the field. Um, people often think of people like Stephen Hawking as being a brilliant mind trapped in a failing body is the cliche right that that's true for, for a lot of people and in an ironic twist i'm now a caregiver to a family member who has motor neuron disease so i, I sort of see it from both sides um but my research was about the fact that about 15 percent of people with motor neuron disease also have a type of dementia and it's frontotemporal dementia so a bit different to alzheimer's normally when you hear dementia you might think memory loss Frontotemporal dementia is more about personality changes. So people becoming quite right. disinhibited, maybe slightly bizarre behaviors, maybe sort of stuffing too much food into their mouth or something very rude or you know, pointing at people and loudly commenting in the street, that type of thing. Right. Um, so a subset of people have that. And then somewhere between a third and half of people have mild cognitive problems. So this kind of executive function. So the part of your brain that does impulse control or comes up with new ideas or verbal fluency. Um, but those were sort of, not easily noticeable unless you did psychological testing. So, right. so we were looking for, for people with those issues and we were um, asking them to have brain scans. So high resolution PET imaging combined with MRI imaging. And what we were trying to 
unravel is this story of, first of all, is it really true that people with MND have cognitive changes? So it's not just a motor neuron disease, it's maybe a motor networks disease or a brain disease. Um, secondly, what were the brain regions involved? And then were there subgroups of people with the condition who are more likely to be affected? And my particular angle was looking at the, the rare subgroup of people who have an inherited form of MND. So, so that's about 10% of, of patients and they have um, mutations like SOD1, which is a very appropriately named gene. Um, and then uh, just after I finished my PhD, actually, they discovered a new mutation called C9OR72. Um, and you'll excuse my genetics uh, ignorance here, but it sort of codes for uh, motor neuron disease and frontotemporal dementia. And so in a family with this gene, you might see, you know, if, if there's lots of siblings and, and things like that, you might see some people got FTD, some people got MND, some people got both. And of course, because they're both quite tricky to diagnose, there's lots of people who you know, maybe went un undiagnosed. But, but that was my, my main area of interest for many years. And, and of course, the challenge there was, um, a lot of doctors didn't believe that it was uh, really an issue. Um, and then partly the, the doctor who described the disease in the first place, uh, Jean-Martin Charcot, said the brain is unaffected. Right. And because that was in the original description, it was difficult to overturn. It was difficult to argue, yeah. Yeah, and so I you know, was doing my research, but also trying to educate professionals and, and literally running around the country, um, not quite with a brain in a jar, but with a picture of a brain in a jar saying, look, frontal right. atrophy, this is a thing. It, uh, um, this reminds me of, have you seen Chernobyl? The, um, it's a new kind of five-part mini-series. And in the first episode, uh, I, don't, I don't think I'm giving too much away here, but it <laughs> happened like five minutes in and, and we all know what happened in Chernobyl. But um, one of the chief engineers refuses to believe that the core could explode. He just says it's not possible. Um, it's not, we, from all of our understanding, it's not possible. Um, and that leads to disaster, right? Because everybody says it can't be that. It's not possible. So um, let's cool it. Let's put water in there and cool it, right? Yeah. yeah. It, and and the, I suppose the thing that was so surprising and maybe the initiative for where my PhD was, was sort of funded by and, and, and why they started looking in this direction before I came on board was that my, uh, my professor had all these letters in, in his office and he would show them to me from caregivers going back into the early 1990s saying, you know, professor, you told me my husband, my wife wouldn't change. And now that, you know, they've passed away and I'm, you know, reflecting, I can tell you there was a different person in there. Right. And I want to understand why. And so, you know, I, I think it took some amount of scientific yeah. bravery to, you know, try and fund this area of research. But um, yeah, now it's taken a stand that in fact, that the main journal of the field has been renamed ALS and frontotemporal dementia. Like we see right. it as a, a group of uh, related issues. But, you know, e even in my, my, my family's own experience and research we've done, it's still not something that's, that's flagged very much. And in fact, I, I wrote an editorial uh, called It's Time to Stop Saying the Mind is Unaffected in ALS. Right. And still, if I Google the mind is unaffected, you know, I find hits in medical textbooks, in newspaper articles. Um, and, and the place I saw it the most frequently was in the obituary of Stephen Hawking. Right. So it, it, unfortunately, it takes, you know, as you know, a long time for an innovation to go from, you know, uh, what is it, bench to bedside. But yep. equally, I think it takes probably about the same amount of time, a couple of decades to overturn incorrect information. Yeah. And that's, you know, uh, Interesting, but frustrating. Well, and it sounds like hearing you tell, I've never heard you talk about the letters from the families, but in, in a way, this kind of links to what you did next, which was, I think, to go to patients like me, where the model was always very flipped around, right? You listen to the patient voice, and you have to consider what's known about science. But often, you know, I, my understanding of the one of the central points of it is that the patient does often know something that the experts don't because they're living with it every day. So that, do you think that kind of led you to thinking like that and to your next career move anyways? So during my PhD, I started running an online community uh, out of the hospital for people living with MND. And um, that started off at, at just two people in their twenties, actually so quite young uh, for the disease and grew to about 500 patients over the course of five years. So that became, as you can imagine, a source of support, uh, of advocacy, of campaigning. Um, and tips and tricks and, and all the rest of the, the type of stuff you'd expect people to share. And, and this was around 2002. So, you know, um, ancient uh, in internet era. Um, 
But uh, you know, a few things stood out from that. One is when we saw people in clinic, we would say, gosh, people are really stoical, aren't they? They're really positive despite all this. And you know, my experience both through online and now as a caregiver is, well, of course they were. That one day, they were seeing the experts and they were getting help. But all the other days, and you know, 2 a.m. in the morning on a Sunday, people are miserable and they're angry. And you know, um, actually, they're pretty resentful of the right. high-handed uh, neurologist sort of uh, arrogantly throwing around big words. Um, and uh, it, it was quite uh, illuminating to see how you know, I could literally see people in clinic uh, one day, just sort of nodding along, thank, thank you, doctor, thank you. Um, but then a, a couple of hours later on the forum, be like, well, that was a complete waste of time. Right. <laughs> you know, why aren't they doing stem cell transplants? Uh, why aren't they, you know, running studies of off-label therapies? Why, why aren't I in a trial? Why are there placebos yep. in trials? You know, oh, I'm, I'm apparently too slowly progressive. Well, shouldn't they be studying the slowly progressive? Don't they, shouldn't they be, you know, taking every specimen they can from me and trying to understand why I'm slow so that we can use that to speed up people who fast? And, and those are all reasonable concerns. Um, I think the other thing that was striking is not every person living with a condition or every caregiver, but there are a subset of people who perhaps in their past life were scientists or professionals of various types, and they would want to apply those skills in the condition. And it occurred to me when I'd go to the annual symposium, and there were no more than about a thousand researchers in the field. We got tens of thousands of people living with a condition. If we could use those skills somehow, we'd we'd be a bigger army, you know, not just a little squad. Um, and it seems silly that, you know, we would use terms like, oh, lay people. Well, you know, I, I guess I came in, I was quite young, you know, I was 22 when I started. And so here I was sort of trying to run a forum for people two, three times older than me. I thought they know far more about life than I do. Right. Um, that still continues to be true. Um, so, you know, wh- why would we patronize these people just because, you know, we know some Latin and, and we know some probably wrong, actually, mental models of disease and health. Right. That, that seems arrogant uh, and, and, and actually un- unlikely to be helpful. So, yeah, can we aggregate their shared experiences in a way that's useful in a place not to replace a randomized control trial necessarily, but a randomized control trial has its place, a very specific place about, you know, testing a new intervention against an existing thing once or twice to prove it to some evidentiary or regulatory body for approval for licensing. But that's not what we need as a, as a level of evidence to decide, for example, oh, um, your, your saliva is very thick, uh, try chewing papaya. Right. You know, uh, or, you know, you're having difficulty turning in bed, try silk sheets. Uh, we don't, no one's going to do a randomized control trial of that with placebo right. sheets, right? Um, so, so these types of things, it would be useful to aggregate them at scale. So, so through that online community is how I got in touch with patients like me, which is an American company founded by a family affected by MND. Um, and they had, as a family, founded a nonprofit called ALS TDI that had tried to replicate all of the academic mice work that had ever been done in the entire field. And after running through uh, you know, $50 million and 20,000 mice, couldn't replicate a single study from the field. Not good. Not good. And <laughs> in, in, in the context of the replication crisis that many people will be familiar with, sadly not that surprising, but they were one of the early uh, discoverers of, of, of that and the short version is that grants are inappropriate vehicles to um, you know uh, do some of this discovery work which requires dozens of mice very carefully controlled in each arm with very careful obsessive you know um, paranoid follow-up about right. were they all kept at the same temperature did the postdoc who's doing the surgery were they videotapes did they you know secretly uh, have a hangover one morning and did a bad job because that's enough to skew the results. Right. And sadly, if those false positives lead to human trials, which cost tens of millions, pharma might say hundreds of millions or more, then we're wasting everyone's time. So yeah, that, that gave them a healthy dose of skepticism about the existing status quo of, right. you know, uh, of discovery and academia and peer reviewed research and all the rest of it. So, so where I fit in as patients like me was, First of all, moderating those communities because they've started emotional neuroses, and then to say, well, which condition should we go to next? And so we went into Parkinson's next, and then MS, um, and then I was helping to develop the uh, medical information systems that would capture data about treatments and symptoms 
conditions, and then the outcomes. So things like a patient reported outcome measure or a PRO, which is basically a fancy way of saying questionnaire, um, lab tests, um, and all the different types of interventions and you know, the inputs and outputs of the system, really. So I was responsible for defining a lot of those um, and then building a research team. So we would sort of work a little bit like a small academic department. We had you know, a multidisciplinary team of different scientists. We would produce peer review quality research because I thought that was very important. Um, we would do commercial research. So it was a for-profit company. Most of our funding came from the pharmaceutical industry. And we decided early on we wanted to be very transparent, very open about that, um, and not to shy away from how we made money. Um, and essentially the, the model was around bringing the patient voice to decision-making in, in pharma mostly, who up until that point uh, had been making decisions based on some data. Or, yeah. But yeah, no, a committee and a frequently a committee of you know, executives with MBAs. Um, and sometimes they'd consult physicians, but for reasons I've mentioned earlier, the physicians don't quite know what it's like to live with an illness. So, you know, I'm, I'm painting with a broad brush here, but we might say, you know, we had this mice study where we, you know, stuck a tube in their spine and force fed them this and, you know, kill them at the end and do whatever. And then we bring it up to pigs or dogs or monkeys, or whatever. And we've got all the controls. And at the point where it goes from animal to humans, no one's really intervened and been like, hey, hang on. Right. Human, humans are not zebrafish. Yeah. Maybe we should talk to some humans about the experience of <laughs> and see what they think a, about this. Yeah. Do you want tap, uh, this intrathecal catheter or walking yeah. around with a pick line with a bag on it, which means you can't have a shower or, Oh, you're disabled. Please come to our hospital that has no ramps. Uh, once a week um, during rush hour, actually, that would be great. And please take the bus, keep a receipt just for you, just for the patient, not for the caregiver. Sorry, no wifi. Sorry, no free lunch. Uh, you know, uh, if you keep your receipt, we'll reimburse you within 90 days, unless the finance department decides not to. And and then they go and have the gall to complain that people won't sign up for their trials. Yeah. Or they drop out. It, it was, it seems obvious. If, if you don't work in the industry, it seems obvious. But it has taken, again, another sort of decade or so to go, ah, listen to patients, listen to caregivers, show them these protocols. Um, so, yes, we've been part of that movement. And, and on the other side, so, so there's the helping pharmaceutical industry improve and, and be more patient-centric. There, there are also quite a few direct benefits to patients who even weren't participating in trials. So can, can you talk a little bit about that? What, would, what was something, you know, if you've never used something like this, what would you find or be able to learn that you might not get from your doctor, for example? Sure. So um, the, the sort of basic... Uh, value proposition to a member would be to uh, find another patient like you. So, you know, we found about a third of people had never met anyone with the same condition as them before um, to share their data. And that would be both with their clinician um, and, you know, to be able to sort of see it tracked and visualized over time. So these PROs that we gave them access to would normally be secret and held from them. And as a researcher, I wasn't allowed to give them their answers and instead we would visualize it, put into context. Um, and then to connect with other people and, and have their data used for good. Uh, I think if, you, if you're being seen as, as a patient, just being treated, um, information about you is maybe being recorded in a medical record, but it kind of disappears off into a black hole. If you're in a research study, whether that be a clinical trial or a registry, it goes into um, a, a, a database somewhere and you have to trust that it will be used for some purpose. But, you know, the reality is, probably turn into a manuscript two or three or four years later um, that not many people will read. Uh, and what would be ideal would be if all of the data of every patient like you could inform the outcomes and the journey of every patient like you to come. And I think there's a big altruistic drive from people, whether they have something annoying like I do, like you know, a bit of eczema, a bit of asthma, or something fatal like motor neuron disease or cancer. You know, people want their journey to have counted for something. And in the hundreds of encounters and barriers they'll have faced, they want the system to get better. And I think that's a reasonable demand. You know, when my word processing software crashes, it files a bug report. And I at least see that that's gone to the manufacturer. Um, and I have some hope that the next time there'll be a patch and an upgrade to the, the system and the flow. And maybe next time I, you know try and insert a reference into a document, it won't crash. There's nothing like that for the health system. And right. yet people encounter bugs of various types all the time. So part of the idea of patients like me was to build that, that data infrastructure. Um, 
And so this was around 2006, and, and I worked there for 13 years. Um, but I would say uh, we still haven't solved that yet. We have electronic medical records in the US to a great extent. You know, we increasingly have registries and databases in, in the UK and Europe. We're still miles away from, from being at that situation where we want to be. And that's in the context of, of your life and my life being transformed in the consumer health tech space. You know, um, why is it Amazon knows everything about what TV show I want to know next or I want to watch next, sorry. Uh, or if I, you know, get a package delivered, I can track exactly where it is and the logistics and what have you. And yet if I have a medical appointment, the clinical team doesn't know what my next problem is. Even if I have a very predictable progressive disease, there's, there's no planning there. There's no prediction. There's not kind of, Oh, patients like you two years into your progression with this at this rate also needed antidepressants, crutches, power wheelchairs, you know, it's very reactive still. And certainly even, you know, take the, the delivery aspects of logistics. Filling a prescription is crazy. You know, we have some, some uh, prophylactic antibiotics for when my family member gets pneumonia. Um, we had this farcical episode where we were literally chasing around a small village trying to find a little bit of paper with a prescription right. uh, on it um, to get the right permission to get the antibiotics to stop him from, you know, have, having pneumonia which, you know, again, would be a massive cost to the healthcare system if you want to view it that way. And, and yet we're sort of running around after these weird 19th century conventions of, you know, uh, a doctor's scribbled <laughs> on a piece of paper. So yeah. it's frustrating. Definitely. How do you see the healthcare system responding to this? Is it responding quickly enough? Or where are the glimmers of hope that, that you think things are getting better? Or are we headed for a disaster? <laughs> I think for many people, and I'm sorry to sound negative, for many patients and caregivers and families, we're already in the disaster. You know, um, a lot of the slack is taken up by families and by caregivers. So, you know, I know you and I have, have been recently to a conference for uh, rare diseases. It's the parents and, and you know, the, the wider family just absorbing all of the impacts and the inefficiencies of the system and, and basically doing the work that, that the system should be doing. And I think that's true of patients. You know, we want patients to be activated and engaged and taking control of their healthcare. I think that is a good thing. But at the same time, it's asking a lot of people, um, you know, and, and our health system was set up, you know, in, in, in 1948 when the NHS was, was set up, only half of people lived past the age of 65. So they weren't set up for chronic conditions. And, you know, if your appendix hurts and, you know, you get in an ambulance and you go out there and they whip it out, the system's set up it for that. Well there. Yeah. It works well for that. It works well for vaccinations. It works well for, you know, probably maternity, arguably. Um, but so what are all the problems we're left with today? Rare diseases, oncology support, past diagnosis and immediate first-line treatment, right? That's probably where we're suffering is, is, is you know, follow-ups and, and helping cancer survivors. Mental health immunological conditions, lifestyle conditions, um, because the system's not, not set up for that. So my hope is that, that these are the areas where we can make some progress. But unfortunately, the drivers of that progress are going to be just frustration. You know, patient groups setting things up for themselves. You know, there should have been no reason for patients like me to exist in the first place. The hospitals all had electronic records. The, you know, the drug companies have very clever databases and, and people that can manage the statistics and all the rest of it. Why, why should we have to have some new entity outside the big circle of, of, of healthcare? So, yeah, to some extent, we, we shouldn't have had to exist. <laughs> right. So how in, in uh, the 13 years while you were there, patients like me grew to hundreds of communities um, how many, probably hundreds of employees as well, started major partnerships with pharmaceutical companies. What was that like? Was, was it, it was probably challenging, I imagine, to go from motor neuron disease where the founders and, and yourself and many of the founding team had a lot of expertise to then try to tackle it for, I, I assume the goal was every rare and chronic condition, you know, because as you say, the problem is not specific to a single disorder but across the board absolutely so uh yes cha challenge but challenges are good you know and yeah. uh you, you you know brits we like we like a challenge um <laughs> so we started off i think in this cluster of neurological conditions so so shortly after ms and parkinson's 
We looked in some rarer subtypes of that. So NMO, for example, which is like a really aggressive version of MS. PSP and MSA, which is sort of even worse forms of Parkinson's disease. Um, but then we went into a different direction, HIV. So, you know, you have an infectious disease that, you know, was in the state that ALS was in 30 years ago. That's now much more treatable, um, at least in the Western world, right? This is not evenly distributed. And, and it was fascinating seeing, for example, patients in New York talking about their CD4 and their viral load very ably and talking about their treatment regimens and managing side effects. But they would have people dialing in from internet cafes in South Africa saying, well, I can't even confirm my diagnosis. And right. there are no drugs. And, and seeing that global health problem sort of on the internet was interesting. Um, we then moved into more of these um, chronic and, and less well understood conditions. So things like mental health problems, fibromyalgia, chronic fatigue syndrome. Uh, and those last three were, were big communities for us, very, very engaged from the patient side. But of course, you know, from a healthcare and an industry perspective, less investment, less research, um, in some quarters, still even skepticism about the diagnosis, you know, does it exist and, and what have you. Right. Um, and those were huge areas of unmet need. And I was very frustrated that we couldn't sort of turn that energy into, um, into more progress. Um, but then around 2011, we realized we can't just build one community at a time, right? There's, there's 7,000 conditions in ICD, 7,000 rare diseases. If we build two conditions a year, uh, we'll, we'll run out of lifespan. So we um, moved to a more generic platform. So anyone could join with any condition and multiple comorbidities, which, you know, the scales really fell from our eyes when we saw suddenly, oh, that MS patient with this interesting MS history. The reason for that is because she also has breast cancer. And once we started being able to add that in, Right. We really saw an awful lot of, of, of interesting things. So, you know, when I said earlier, you could find a patient like you, finding someone who has MS and is a breast cancer survivor is, is huge, right? That patient like me might not be down one line um, or equally, we saw people connecting across conditions. So if you are, um, you know, a military veteran, you might be interested to speak to someone who's got epilepsy uh, or osteoarthritis because you're both dealing with the VA uh, in America, for example. Um, so, so that really changed our our definitions but we definitely found that we were strongest either where we had the most disease knowledge and the most connections and the most sort of experience or just where the patient community was hugely engaged and you know that that the demographics of who was engaged with us at the time it started off you know 2006 7 8 quite biased um more educated more wealthy more white because that's who was using the internet and we saw that gap close slowly over time um especially as the move to mobile occurred. So we started right. off as a desktop site uh, back when people used to sit in front of computers with screens. Um, and then over time, you know, I remember that when we hit more than 50% of users were on mobile devices and just looking at this personal health record of someone who'd been tracking the data every week for four or five years with, you know, 10 conditions and 20 drugs. And we just think, this doesn't fit on a smartphone. How do we fit this on a screen that size? Yeah. And the answer is you can't really. Um, which, which became an interesting challenging of, of its own. And, and for us, I think one of the constant things was, well, what is the value here? What is, what is the asset? Is the asset the community and the engagement? You know, we, we weren't selling ads, so we don't need eyeballs like Facebook or, or Google does. You know? um, we, we need data and good data that we can, we can draw insights from. But asking people to just give data without getting something back is a non-starter. So we wanted, we have this policy of give something, get something. So as soon as you give us some data in a field, you get something back in a report or a graph, or you can actually see it being shared with that whole community. And we saw great, great things where people would say, I remember one case, there was someone who um, was arguing with their clinician and their insurance company that they should be on a higher dose of a medicine for spasticity. And they used our histograms of here's all the dosages Right. backed by a drug database backed by you know some fda information uh, about you know on label dosing or what have you um to, to make that case got a higher dose that he thought he wanted um and ended up with about an hour or so of extra time a day because he wasn't sort of spending hours shuffling backwards and forwards in a car park and, and those cases happened again and again you know, we published a couple of research studies about the benefits of, of connecting with people uh, that have the same condition um, and in probably my, my favorite uh, little finding of all time, we actually found a dose effect curve of friendship. So in terms of the benefits of using right. a site like, you know, better side effect management or better adherence or avoiding risky behaviors or you know, less inpatient care, the biggest predictor was not how many times you logged into the website or how sick you were. It was how many other people you'd met with the condition since you joined 
the site. Right. Um, and so, and so that's been the message. Patients are the secret ingredient, you know, and, and as much as I think we had a neat user interface and all the rest of it, it wasn't the pixels. Yeah. It was the, the people and the relationships. And that, that's not surprising in some ways. Um, but, you know, you asked about the health system earlier. Uh, in some avenues of life, we connect people with people. When you are pregnant, we connect you through, in England, NCT, you go on a, a course and you find a group of people and you all put a nappy on a, on a, on a dummy and you all have a good laugh. Um, so some of that is kind of static educational content, but probably nowadays the most useful thing that emerges from that is the WhatsApp group that, right. that keeps that, that group together. Now, if tomorrow you got diagnosed with something nasty, why isn't there something like that for you? And, you know, I can hear some, you know, IT professionals or, or NHS managers, you know, heads, heads popping uh, off, off, in, uh, off in the distance. Uh, the notion that, you know, this is all oh, that sharing health data, that's a, that's a breach of privacy, it's a breach of confidentiality. And I think the essential hypothesis of patients like me was that people would be willing to make a trade-off in, in a somewhat protected environment. They would share the most sensitive data about themselves because it could benefit them and it could benefit others like them. Yep. And I, and I think what it, we share a similar approach to patients like me where at, at Sano, we try to be incredibly upfront about our business model and the fact that you have the option at any time to share or not share. And I think thinking about these different trends, we you spoke about Amazon earlier, we have we have an expectation now that things should be better and more personalized. And we have an also a growing expectation that we should be in control of our data and protect it. And, and to me, the only, the only way of doing both of those things is to put people in control of their data, right? If you, if you can sacrifice uh, privacy and get better, you know, potentially better prediction, which a lot of the social networks have gone for, but I do think there's a middle way, which, um, you know, which patients like me, I think, was a leader in. And, and partly that's you have to show people the benefit. And there really has to be one, by the way. You can't just say there'll be some, you know, uh, yeah. trust us benefit. Um, one of our policies that was very helpful for internal decision making was no surprises. Will our members be surprised when they find out that we have, you know, analyzed their data in this way or published their data in this way or shared it with this third party or what have you? Um, and, and that was... In some, not 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 to downplay the importance of lawyers and legal agreements and privacy in terms of use, but but that that was a really helpful shorthand for us to kind of go, ah, you know, as a person, <laughs> would right. I be surprised if, you know, I've I've signed up to download an MP3 from some website and before I know it, my email address is being spammed to you know 400 things. I'm surprised by that. That's not yeah. what I wanted to happen, right? Now, if you do that with health data, that's a big problem. Um, one of the uh, sorts of things to think about there is is certainly the consequences for for some people and and i think what we had to contend with sometimes was that as you know professionals sitting in boston um you know with uh, often you know a privileged education and all the rest of it the risks to us of sharing certain health conditions are different from you know, other people out there so you know it's not uncommon to see now more people talking about previously quite stigmatized conditions whether that's in mental health or uh, diabetes or chronic conditions or oncology and what have you. Um, but we had to acknowledge that that same thing's not true for everyone. Um, you know, so we had patients in Iran with HIV, for example. Um, and, you know, they don't have that same, uh, you know, context in, in which sharing is okay. So, so we had to be careful on, on obviously our security, but also, you know, to, to be conscious that when we're saying sharing is a good thing. Yeah, that comes with we, some we context. Have, and we have a conflict there, right? We, yep. we think sharing is a good thing because to some extent we think the value of the company and the value of the data assets is tied into that. But how can, we make how, how can we help people to make an informed decision about that, bearing in mind that to some degree, if, if you really want to ensure that your data is um, definitely not hackable or leakable, write it on a piece of paper, lock the piece of paper in a safe, put the safe at the bottom of the ocean, and then you know, set fire to the ocean. Yeah. That's pretty much the only way you're going to guarantee that it's safe because once it's on a computer, um, that there's right. risk to it. So, so then we took the approach of saying, uh, and I would say I, I wish we'd done more here, how can we at a policy level have, as countries ensure that health data that has been shared for good is not used against you? You know, if, if you go and donate blood 
Um, right. The, the police shouldn't be sitting there drug screening your blood to then come and arrest you for, you know, having THC levels. Um, yes. Same thing with your health data, right? And, and yet, you know, a few years ago, there was this thing called care.data, uh, which ended up getting scrapped around issues of, of consent. And one of the uh, things that was proposed was that, you know, certain departments and government will be able to look at health data from your GP to right. determine whether or not you are skiving off work and, and, and deserve your disability benefit. So that's a terrible It's a terrible example. policy. It's a yeah. terrible policy. And and we saw little incremental improvements. So in the, in the United States, things like the Genetic Insurance Non-Discrimination Act, GINA, which which you might be familiar with. But of course that doesn't apply to every form of insurance. Um, yeah. and, and people's biggest worries for their employer finding out, you know, that I've got bipolar or I've got HIV or I've got chronic fatigue syndrome or what have you. Um, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's one of the most common differences in interacting that we have from Sano users in the U.S. versus the U.K., for example. The U.S., the, the top concern is about, will my data be accessible by insurance companies? Um, there's data privacy is top of mind in, in U.K. and Europe, but for different reasons, right? It's not about insurance, um, you know, specifically, but it's it's almost more of a philosophical thing and it's in the dna of people here right that it's a it's a reason gdpr originated in this part of the world and not in the u.s yes and you know not to overstate the case but but this part of the world does not have a great track record of large national databases of people's yeah. ethnicity um and and that's a reasonable concern and you know you don't have to look too far east in china to see where that that can also be a problem so i think people are right to be conscious of this and and i think one of the little worries that i have sometimes is a lot of this work, a lot of this field starts from patients affected by a disease, moves to let's try and share together, let's find a solution, let's move to the, the next next stage. But at some level, you'll hit a point where it becomes either a corporation, you know, multinational corporation or a government. Um, and then you get quite far away from the end user. Um, and so, you know, I, I think it's very important to have concerns there. So when I was speaking on Twitter recently to somebody um, who's very concerned about you know, how Facebook was using her, her data and uh, the data from her patient group online. Yep. And, and I was talking about, you know, some of my concerns about, you know, say, reflecting data back to people, reflecting people's genetics data back. And, and she said, well, think about driving 50, 60 years ago. You know, no seatbelts, no airbags, no safety standards, uh, no, no alcohol restrictions, no speed limit restrictions. So, you know, and yet, you know, uh, Millions of us um, happily strap our whole families into basically mobile bombs and uh, right. gallop down the motorway on the basis of some little white paint on, on the floor and, and some lines and, and some belief in, in the law. So, um, you know, there is hope, there is potential. It's not binary. It's not everything is secret or everything is in, you know, WikiLeaks. There is some in between here. Um, but the, the issues are complex. And I think they're complex for politicians to engage in. Um, they are perhaps longer term. So those of, of us, I might even say those of you who are sort of quantitative scientists maybe are very focused on p-values and nature papers and, and don't always have to come up a level and explain it to, you know, um, an MP or, or a policy person or someone who, who's, you know, has, has less of that education and to kind of walk them all the way through, well, here's your shotgun sequencing, da, 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 da. <laughs> you know, it, it's difficult to, to convey these, these complex things. On, on, the, um, on the subject of cultural differences in, in geopolitics, the last couple of years for patients like me have been pretty rocky because the company had an investment from a Chinese, uh, partially Chinese-owned company um, and uh, Donald Trump, my understanding is basically forced that company to divest out of patients like me, citing concerns of patient data of U.S. citizens being uh, available to a potentially Chinese state-influenced entity. Is and and that was a real, uh, real challenge for the company, wasn't it? To actually go through that. It's like a ripping, ripping a big piece of it out. Yeah, I'm not sure President Trump did it personally. Um, you know, <laughs> I, I didn't need many more reasons to dislike the man. But if I picture him sort of, you know, picking on us and saying, you know, 
uh, I'm going to write an angry tweet about this. So yeah, I mean, the, the backstory is, you know, Pace Like Me have been operating for over a decade um, in this sort of model of you know, building a community, uh, helping patients to improve their outcomes. Um, for various reasons, it was difficult to actually get a business model around improving patient outcomes, which you would hope that there'd be an active right. thriving business there, but there's not. And so the side of sort of sharing data for research, and it was a relatively small proportion of that data that would be used for, uh, you know, the, these insights. Um, but then in 2016, as part of a $400 million investment into seven companies, uh, there was the formation of something called the iCarbonX uh, Digital Health Alliance. And patients like me, you know, it's public received $100 million of that. And, and that really was the point that was the most exciting for the company. So we went from about 100 employees to about 200. And, and 45 of those people were in R&D, so in, in my department. Um, so I was running the sort of phenomic side of that, so the questionnaires and the databases and that type of stuff. And then my counterparts, uh, who are much uh, more traditional scientists than I am, were computational biologists and geneticists and AI people and data scientists and all the rest of that. Um, and we embarked on this incredible program uh, called Digital Me, where we were going out and sending phlebotomists to the homes of patients with some of the diseases I've mentioned, you know, ALS, MS, Parkinson's, lupus, uh, RA, fibromyalgia, mental health conditions, and, and getting really detailed um, data that I guess from, from my responsibility would have similar questions across all those conditions. So for example, if someone's got problems walking because they have MS or because they've got rheumatoid arthritis or because they've got both, we were taking this novel approach of using similar questions, similar PRO items so that we could actually look at that across time. And we were actually getting these, these bloods longitudinally. So hopefully we could try and say, well, what's a predictor of relapse in MS? What's a predictor of flare right. in lupus? But yeah, so this committee um, called CFIUS uh, was looking at us. Uh, they also looked at the, the social dating network grinder at the same time. Um, and I believe this is unusual, if not unprecedented in their history. They tended to look at national security issues before this. So, you know, um, how happy are the American government with some foreign entity buying a company that makes microchips for missiles, for example? Right. There was not a very happy. Pork suppliers, right, uh, a couple of years ago. Oh, uh, yeah. And I think it, there was a Middle Eastern country that wanted to buy a port in New York just after 9-11. And so, you know, one is used to those types of things. So they were looking into this um, this from uh, you know very a very different perspective and yeah the the, the decision came came through um, that that we had to be divested and so that was was covered in, in the media um, and uh, Chrissy Farr wrote a piece in CNBC kind of talking about it and then you know I think when you see it discussed in in the press it's discussed in the context of the U.S. China trade war. Right. Um, and so now, you know, you, you see many different industries being touched in, in various ways by, by different things. And, you know, uh, I think Scotch whiskey is currently under a massive tariff of something to do with uh, European subsidies to airlines or something like that. So, right. you know, it was kind of a, a startup that, that can keep on going for you know, over a decade is an incredible thing. And to do that, our team... And, and the, the members who shared the data with us did incredible things, overcame incredible barriers. Um, and to have something like that come completely out of left field as a, as a one-off black swan was awful. Yeah. Um, you know, as it turned out that the company was then acquired by United Health Group, which is a very large corporation in, in the States that, that deals with millions of patients and has all sorts of interesting um, operations. But um, yeah, it, it, it's it's a shame to see that that the uh, impact on Chinese inward investment in the US has obviously <laughs> dropped off substantially, um, and and I think that's a shame. So our, our Chinese partners, um, many of them came from the Beijing Genomics Institute (BGI), which would be very familiar to the, the, the genetics nerds uh, who are listening, <laughs> and and they've done some incredible things. You know, um, uh, Wang Jun, who was who was working with us, the guy's got an H index of 120 uh, for anyone that, that counts that. And, you know, his work has made the front page of nature, I think, 20 times. So he was really serious. Knows uh, stuff. Yeah. Knows his stuff, but also, you know, had this you know, very fast, sometimes even brute force approach to sequencing. Um, right. You know, I think someone said, oh, can we sequence this bird? And he said, why don't we do 10,000 birds? Um, right. <laughs> why don't I guess we do they had a lot of sequencing birds? machines. Yeah. yeah, do all the birds. <laughs> Uh, they did the human uh, human microbiome, gut, gut microbiome, I think they did. And um, yeah, so, you know, and, and I think as we think about what innovation is in the UK, the US, what have you, to some extent, you know, the sort of Silicon Valley excitement has 
ossified into five or six, you know, Facebook, Amazon, Netflix, Google, Amazon, quite entrenched, verging on monopolies. Um, and, you know, when I started in digital tech, I thought we were around to just, you know, uh, disintermediate Microsoft or, uh, you know, IBM or Fujitsu or, you know, sorry, those guys. Um, but, you know, th that, that was what these, these new entrants were to do. And to some extent now they have become possibly the thing that they, they sought to replace in the first place. So, you know, perhaps this is inevitable and cyclical and <laughs> was it ever thus. Um, but it'll be interesting to see what is the next round of, of disruption. Um, you know, I am I am ignorant on on gene editing, but I'm very excited about the prospect of that. Um, there are other hyped things about AI and blockchain or whatever, and, and I can't really understand that. And yeah. don't really see where it goes. But you know, if if you explain to me that you can edit bits of a genome that are malfunctioning, that seems really exciting to me. Um, and if you think of the really basic way that the drugs we have now are kind of just carpet bombing systems, we don't really fully understand. Uh, in order to yield relatively small effects at very high prices, you know, the, the, the game-changing potential of this is huge. Um, but one would need digital systems and, and, and tracking all this stuff longitudinally to try and understand the impact, try and understand what was worth it. And my hope is that as you know, technologies become uh, more commoditized and more available to consumers, that this will, um, you know, maybe move back to earlier forms of the internet where we saw people hacking around and people doing stuff in their basements and people doing stuff in the kitchens. I'm not necessarily suggesting people are going to come up with the cures for you know, their own conditions or their children's conditions in, in their basements. But 20 or 30 years from now, that actually doesn't seem completely infeasible. Um, and so I'm interested, you know, you asked about my view for the future. I'm interested in helping to make systems that make that a reality um, with appropriate levels of paranoia. Well, and I, and I think as we bring more, the, the closer we shine the light on any one condition and the more data we bring to bear almost without, you know, with, without, um, it, there's basically in every single case, it becomes more complex and you can split it into more subtypes or different groups. So this concept of rare diseases and common diseases and them being two separate things is, is really starting to erode. Right. And I think you're right that in, 10, 20, 30 years time, we'll have a much better understanding of, of truly personalized medicine and an understanding of why you have become the way you are and, and hopefully how to fix it. So it's a really about bringing all of these pieces of data to bear and understanding them and, and then being able to do something about it, right? And it won't always work. I mean, one of our biggest problems right now is diabetes and obesity. And to some extent, you could argue we kind of know what to do about that. And yet, it ain't working. Um, so, you know, we look at diseases like phenylketonuria and, and others, and we kind of hope that, gosh, if we did newborn screening, and then we just said, you know, modify your diet in this way, we could prevent this awful thing from coming through. I don't know how many things there'll be like that. I don't know whether it'll be, you know, go on a ketogenic diet and we'll, we'll you know, eradicate your epilepsy. If there are any like that, it's worth building the data systems. And then right now, if you were to try and say, I'm going to self-experiment with a group of you know, five, 10, 20 parents about this diet or that diet, there is no systematic way of doing that. You know, um, it shouldn't be hard. That's what the internet's great at. It's really simple group right. formation and, and data exchange. Um, and if you knew uh, the, the genetic subtypes of what was going on there, that could be great. I think increasingly the other thing to think about, and again, I'm, I'm over my skis here because I'm not a, a lab scientist in that sense, but think about all the more dynamic omics changing there, like, protein expression or you know, metabolomics or what have you, um, that is increasingly becoming, here's a finger prick test that you do in the post. Um, it wouldn't surprise me if that becomes, here's a machine that you have in your house. Uh, or, you know, here's a machine that 20 of us could chip in and buy. Right. And, uh, and, and you know, do, do some stuff with that. So then you would say, well, you know, we've, we've tried this diet and tried that diet and we're seeing an effect on our biomarker. And, you know, it wouldn't be beyond the realms of possibility if that data was easily recorded, shared in a way that other scientists could come and then interrogate that, they could contribute to it. Or again, wouldn't be outside the bounds of probability to say, you know, hey, press a button here to turn this into a draft manuscript um, right. to, to be sent off. And then I think the boundaries between who's a scientist and who's a participant will disappear. Need to blur, yeah. Because 
you know, you know as well as I do, we have more problems than we have scientists. Yeah, <laughs> we have more sick people than we have doctors, uh, and we're not going to get out of this problem by saying, "Oh gosh, you know, 0.1% of the population's got a medical degree. If we could just double the number of doctors, we'd solve everything." No, we wouldn't. Yeah, we have to build different agree. systems um, and, and rearchitect those systems. So that's what I'm interested in. Um, not to throw out the baby with the bathwater. There's very good reasons to be very conscious about safety issues, to be conscious about conflicts of interest, to be conscious of your beautiful uh, hypothesis that becomes your baby and you become blinded to all the things that could disprove it. Um, I've seen that happening very well-intentioned people. I've seen it happening myself. But the opportunity is that, that, that data and systems and software could help us maybe not circumvent, but at least reflect back to us which one of our 300 cognitive heuristic biases we're currently falling to. And, you know, it, it, it's perhaps a, a trite um, comparison, but, you know, I don't know how satellites work. I don't know how rockets work, but my sat-nav works and my Google Maps works. And I don't need to know how any of the intervening technologies work there. And they are about as complicated as some of this stuff. So I think there's the potential um, to, to, to build these, these systems. Um, and, uh, yeah, that's, that's what I hope to do yeah. for the rest of my life. So, so just to wrap up here, you're, you're no longer with patients like me, you're working with uh, a few different companies, ourselves included. So you've, um, you've recently agreed to be one of our scientific advisors, which is great. It's, uh, it's always good to have someone who's been there and done it to help us to carry the baton, I suppose, in a slightly different way. We're focused on genetics and rare and chronic genetic conditions, but um, having someone who's built patient communities and engaged people is, uh, you know, is, is really great. What other sorts of things are you working on? I know you're working with another large-scale uh, patient-facing organization, Health Unlocked, and, and a few others. Yeah, so I'm an independent consultant uh, at the moment, and I'm I'm enjoying that a lot more than I thought I would actually, because um, you know at first it was a bit unusual for me because I'd obviously been at one company for so long to then be you know sort of uh, working on contracts with a number of different companies. Um, so yeah, I do some work with Health Unlocked, which is uh, I think one of the world's largest social networks for people with medical conditions. They've got a great model where actually they give the tools to the nonprofits. So they've got hundreds of nonprofits in, you know, Parkinson's or lung disease or asthma or, or even sort of wellness conditions like the Couch to 5K program that the NHS does. And they've really turned over the keys of those communities to the people within those communities. And, and that's been really powerful. Uh, and they, um, unlike our work at Patients Like Me, have, have found some ways to build models around getting paid to improve activation of patients by the NHS, you know, who are very hard to sell to, <laughs> as you'll know. Right. Um, so that's been great. Um, and then, yeah, I've, I've, I've been doing some sort of um, shorter bits of work, sort of advising different companies. And, and what's, what's amazing is how frequently many of the same issues come up. So, you know, if you're working in healthcare, they want to know, should we go deep or should we go broad? Uh, should we look for the worried well or should we look at sick people? Um, you know, should we look at uh, incredibly detailed patient reported outcomes or should we try and get the medical records? And, and frequently the, the answer is it. It depends and it's contextual. It depends what you're trying to achieve on what time scale, um, how patient you are, uh, how common the condition is. Uh, but a big one is also just what is the status quo? You know, if you're working in a fairly rare or a fairly underfunded condition, the status quo might be, you know, a couple of medics did projects during their master's programs and they studied 10 patients and, you know, published a letter. So if you can get 100 people together and do a survey, that could be used by NICE and FDA and clinicians and academics and nonprofits. And so that's a different level of validation than say, oh, you want to be the thousandth person operating in diabetes right now. Well, you've got a big task ahead of you unless you've got some unique um, approach or, or, or some unique angle. So that's been, that's been great. Um, one of the things I do a lot of work with uh, people now is on scientific dissemination. So you've got this data or you've got this research. How do you get it out there as quickly as possible? Um, and how do you make sure the maximum number of people can read it? So, you know, use preprints, go to open access or pay for open access. Um, and then, you know, try and find journals or other outlets that really want your work. You know, sometimes when you um, throw your, your manuscript at the most famous journal you can think of, you've got to bear in mind, they reject 98% of what's sent to them. And, and the question is, particularly when you're a startup, you want to wait the six months for them to reject you? Or you want to find somewhere you can go where someone's actually receptive to that and that you'll find your audience. 
Yeah, and, and a, a qu- just a quick aside on this one for people who aren't aware of how crazy the system is. The it's still probably the majority of journals charge the researchers to submit, and then they charge people a subscription to read. And if you're a patient that has motor neuron disease, you'd like to read a research paper. Uh, you know, more than half the time you actually can't read it because you haven't paid the hundred dollar fee to one of the large publishing companies. So there is this big movement towards open access and preprints, which seems to me like a no brainer. And hopefully that whole industry will reshape itself over the next decade. But it's, it's, I mean, that's just a leaving aside the fact that some of the papers are challenging to read. Um, you should at least give people access to them. Um, so, so they can give it a try. Yeah, if, if you're having a good mood and you'd like to change that, I'd recommend uh, spending a few hours reading about the open access movement and how crazy it is. Um, so myself as a caregiver and my family member as participant have, have read papers that we're in um, that, you know, we had to rent them for you know, $49.99 to rent them for 24 hours uh, or what have you. Um, it is starting to change. I'm, I'm part of a, a patient partnership initiative at the British Medical Journal, for example, where now when you submit a paper there, you have to say how patients are involved in the planning of your study, the design of your study, and how you plan to disseminate the results, if at all. Um, and so once that has become a, a, a sort of not, not quite a checkbox, but a, it know, a requirement. It sets the bar higher, right? That- it sets the bar higher. And so for the first few years, people would write these statements no patients were involved. We didn't ask anybody. We don't intend to disseminate to the, uh, to the people who took part or to the wider community. In some senses, we made people write that out. So they would go, oh. This is, this is not a good look. Yeah. Maybe it's not a good look. Yeah. But, you know, over the few years that it was implemented, it went from sort of 1% of people engaging with the, the community to what they just published. Um, it's, it's crept up to 11% over the course of a year or two. And I, I was... 10x. You just need to 10x it again. Oh, that's very optimistic take. Yeah. Thank you. I like, I like that. Um, but it also shows, you know, the pace of things. If someone's submitting a paper today, it probably did the work last year. They probably designed the grant three years before that. Yeah, that's and, right. And so there's a lag to work through the system. And I, th- I suppose you can probably tell because I talk quite quickly. I'm an impatient person. I, and, and, you know, I, I've trained in, in ALS for 17 years where median survival is 18 months. We're in a hurry. You know, we're yep. in a sustained hurry. And it's frustrating that, you know, some of the paces of change that I've talked to you about today feel glacial, feel like I have to wait for yeah. incumbent powers to retire or die. And they're dying slower than we are. There, like, there, so- are, there are other options that I won't explicitly recommend, <laughs> but for <laughs> impatient listener, um, yeah, I, I understand that if you tweet, I can has paper or something like it's that. Our, it's, our, it's hashtag I can I, has PDF. That's right. Um, then some friendly person who definitely has the right to distribute it will send you a PDF uh, on Twitter. They, and there's also will. Sci-Hub and uh, those yep. sorts of uh, websites. There's, there's Sci-Hub, there's ResearchGate, and some publishers now have a policy where if you, you know, pinky promise that you're a patient, they will give you access. To stuff. But right. the, the point is there shouldn't be these hurdles. And, and it's not just, uh, sorry, this is a side rant of mine. It's not just patients, it's not just academics. If you are a practicing doctor right who's not associated with the hospital you may not have access even if you are if you're a professor of whatever but you're on your smartphone and you're on the bus you yeah. can't remember your password and it your login time. and your cookies and your vpn and and this should be seamless because we are spending at, at your tax money my tax money trillions globally yeah. to do this stuff and and so there should be no it should be seamless and it can be seamless. so that that will change the next step past that by the way which i think could be very transformative is um, once you can see the research paper what you see is a box plot a histogram a table you should have questions about that you should say well what happens if you took out all the females from there what happens if you you did the outliers differently what happens if i did the maths in a slightly different way and increasingly now data sets are coming along have all the data that's papers. right and and you know my my statistics is pretty rusty. I'm just a psychologist, but there are increasingly tools that will be available there that I can come and manipulate that data, and and perhaps even increasingly use natural language so that I could ask you know something in a browser, hey, what happens if you took out all these outliers, and I would get the answer yep. there and then. And this is this is not far fetched. This is this is coming, um, and that's going to massively open up who can interrogate that data, who can draw insights from it, um, and 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 who can benefit. So that's going to be hugely exciting 
you know that that's going to be opening up so so many more possibilities um obviously we'll have to deal with the <laughs> massive increase in potential you know what sort of data sets i could be looking at and, and drawing together um but um yeah i i think that that's that's long overdue well great so i i know we're uh, we've probably blasted through our 30 minutes and our hour uh if you're going to be in the edit suite aren't you no we'll we're, we don't do much editing we'll uh <laughs> If people want to keep track of you, uh, you're a prolific tweeter. Um, what's what's your Twitter? Are there anything else you want to share? Website or other places to find you? Uh, yes, if if you can if you can tolerate my uh, my thoughts, uh, I'm on Twitter at Paul like me, as in Paul when right. I was at Patients Like Me. I may have to change that to Paul liked me or something else. <laughs> uh, but then that starts to look like I had an odd relationship with someone called Paul. Yeah, that could that could be misinterpreted. <laughs> That's a good name, though. It's a, a little bit like MySpace Tom, who's uh, yeah. he he lost the battle, but I think he's won the war. He's out taking photographs in Thailand and all sorts of fun places instead of being pulled in front of Congress. So, <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, when companies in the space are trying to copyright words like "we" and "book," uh, right. you, know, you know, we have some some problems. Yeah. Okay. Well, great. Thanks, Paul. It's a pleasure as always. Thanks so much. I've really enjoyed the conversation. Patrick.